0: This is The Point on CAI. I'm Steve Junker. It is Friday, the 9th of February. This is our weekly local news roundup. We'll be discussing the week's top stories with reporters and editors from around the region. Today on the program, we'll be hearing from CAI's Jeanette Barnes and Eve Zuckoff. We'll speak with Unki Sanu of the Martha's Vineyard Times and Tim Wood of the Cape Cod Chronicle. We'll hear from Ed Miller of the Provincetown Independent and Jason Graziade of Nantucket Current. CAI's Patrick Flannery will check in with our statehouse reporter, Katie Lennon, And we'll speak with CAI's Brian Engels. Now to some of the news around the Cape, the coast, and the islands. Congress is trying to finalize the overdue federal budget by the end of the month. What could that possibly have to do with the Cape and islands? Well, a big chunk of funding for the Cape Cod bridges could get approved or cut in the negotiations. CAI's Jeanette Barnes reported this week on the status of that money. She joins us now. Hi, Jeanette. Hi, Steve. We are talking about $350 million for the replacement of the bridges that President Biden put in his budget request. These are the Bourne and Sagamore bridges. But the House may not be on board. Tell us about that.
1: This is money for the bridges um, that made it into the Senate bill with support from our senators, Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey. Um, But it is not in the House bill. Um, And the reason we're talking about this now is that uh, once again, Congress is facing a deadline at the end of this month to put a budget in place. Otherwise, they'll have to do the stopgap funding again in order to prevent partial government shutdown. Um, So there are intensive negotiations happening. um, And Warren and Markey are asking the leaders of the Senate subcommittee that's handling this portion of the budget, this kind of subject matter. Um, They're asking them to make keeping the full amount a priority as they negotiate with the House. Warren and Markey sent a letter this week to uh, the chair of that subcommittee, who's a Democrat, and to the ranking Republican. Uh, So remember, the Senate is controlled by Democrats right now. The House is controlled by Republicans. So they have different priorities, and that is part of what makes this money uncertain for the Cape Cod Bridges.
0: Now, you interviewed Senator Warren this week. What did she say about the likelihood of success getting this money into the final budget?
1: Well, it would be very hard to promise success right now. Uh, But I asked her about the level of priority for this. Like, could she say it was her top priority for this committee, or could she say that for the entire budget, which I knew wasn't really likely. Um, And her answer was for this committee, that's handling this bill. She and Marky have told the leaders the bridge funding is their highest priority. Um, Of course, the budget is a big document, and certainly she has other things that she's working on as well.
0: We know the state is still waiting for word on a grant for the bridges from the Federal Highway Administration. This grant would be much bigger. This is like the jackpot grant. It would be more than a billion dollars. Talk about how that would affect this bridge project.
1: Absolutely, you're right. It would be a bit of a jackpot, at least for the Sagamore Bridge, right? So this um, the state has received a couple of smaller grants, uh, and most recently they've applied for this this more than $1 billion grant from the Bridge Investment Program. Um, if the state receives both that grant and the $350 million in the budget, um, then those combined with previous funding and money in governor healy's capital plan together that would almost match the current cost estimate for the sagamore bridge um, which the state has decided to build first Um, so those those funding sources we've reported on would total about two billion dollars the estimate right now is 2.1 billion dollars so that really would mean full steam ahead uh, at least for the sagamore Um, And then some of the next steps, as we've talked about before, are that um, the environmental permitting process is going to be going forward for both bridges simultaneously. uh, And the state is going to be hiring a design build team for the Sagamore.
0: Let's turn to another story you covered this week. The Cape and Islands district attorney announced state grants for some of his priorities. But your story elevated a new crime statistic. Let's start with that
1: yes the number of prosecutions on charges of human trafficking on the cape and islands went up 31 percent last year over the previous year uh and to give you an idea of the scope of that there were 58 cases prosecuted over the last three-year period um so that started under the previous da um About DA Robert Galliboy spoke this week, along with members of his staff uh, and some of the nonprofit organizations that handle human trafficking. And um, some of them said that in the past, you know, many people thought this wasn't happening on the Cape and Islands, but it is. And part of that is that uh, the definition of human trafficking sometimes is not really common knowledge are well understood. So trafficking does not have to involve human smuggling, like bringing people in from other countries. It can be just profiting illegally from someone else's labor or arranging for such, um, including sexual exploitation. So this is happening on the Cape. Uh, Vanessa Madge, who is an assistant district attorney um, and chief of the DA's Human Trafficking and Child Abuse Unit, uh, said this often happens online. Um, and then on the labor side um, of the equation there, I because we have such a huge seasonal workforce, I wanted to ask about that. And I asked after the press conference um, of Katerina Parachi, who's a police detective um, in Barnstable and works on a trafficking task force. I asked her, what's the difference between labor trafficking and more general violations of labor law? She said that they can be actually very hard to distinguish, um, but she encourages people to report suspected violations to their local police department because something that looks like a more ordinary labor law issue at first sometimes turns into a trafficking case.
0: Hmm. Uh, DA Gallavois was announcing some grant funding around this and also for narcotics and firearms investigations. Tell us a little bit about where this money will go as it enters the community.
1: Sure. So yes, his office applied for these grants from the state. They received um, about ninety nine thousand dollars for the narcotics and firearms issues. That's going to uh, the Falmouth and Yarmouth police departments, also to the state detective, um, the state police detective unit that's assigned to the DA's office. Those are all for investigations, to help investigations of narcotics and firearms. And then some of that money also will go to uh, Behavioral Health Innovators, which has a youth peer group program, uh, and they're going to be expanding that program. Then on the uh, trafficking side, there's another um, good-sized state grant, about $97,000. That's going to uh, a few different groups as well. Independence House on the Cape, Cape Cod Path. Um, and the Barnstable Police. The biggest piece of the anti-trafficking money is um, actually going to a group called My Life, My Choice, which is based in Boston, but they do work with some trafficking survivors on the Cape, and they're planning to expand what they offer here. Um, they're going to be doing some prevention work. Often it's young people who get caught up in this, so um, they are going to be working with young people, and they they also match survivors of trafficking with mentors who were trafficked themselves. And they say, that's very effective.
0: Uh, Busy week, lots going on. Before we let you go, I want to spend a few minutes talking about offshore wind. You've been trying since last week to get an update on vineyard wind and what's going on offshore there as they're constructing turbines. Tell us what you've learned.
1: Yes. Well, we know that uh, Vineyard Wind still is not sending continuous power to the grid, right? So we we heard the, the fanfare about the initial sending of power to the grid, but it hasn't been ongoing full-time. Avangrid, um, which is one of uh, the project's two parent companies, Vineyard Wind's parent companies, says that um, they have delivered power to the grid intermittently, they say, up to 13.6 megawatts at one time. Now, happens to be the updated rating for each one of their turbines individually. So most likely that's kind of the powering on of one turbine at a time as part of the startup process. Um, In terms of construction, they've now completed eight turbines. Uh, The spokesman for Vineyard Wind says a ninth one is under construction. And uh, as Vineyard Wind is promising that they have some kind of announcement coming up soon. They're not saying what it is. It may be an announcement of a full-time operation of the first group of, of turbines. We don't know for sure. Um, if so, that will probably be for what they're calling the first string, which is five turbines. Um, but considering how quiet things have been with Vineyard Wind over the last month, I wanted to talk to the Healy administration and see if they had Any concerns about this progress? Um, Carissa Hand, who was a spokesman for Governor Healy, said they do feel confident that um, operation of Vineyard Wind will get underway soon.
0: Hmm. That is CAI's Jeanette Barnes. Jeanette, thanks so much.
1: All right. Thanks, Steve.
0: The critically endangered right whale found dead on Martha's Vineyard recently died from entanglement wounds, according to a preliminary report. CAI's Eve Zuckoff has been reporting on this. She joins us today with updates. Hi, Eve. Hi, Steve. Tell me more about the cause of death that was determined here.
2: Sure. So basically right away when the International Fund for Animal Welfare got on the ground with this whale, they could see deeply within her tail, the most narrow part of her tail. There was a... Line um, wrapped around it, um, and she suffered for you know a year and a half from this entanglement. It was obviously not new. Um, and then, when they were able to study her more closely in a necropsy, they didn't see any evidence of blunt force trauma or infectious disease. Blunt force trauma would have been probably she would have gotten hit by a boat, so right away they were kind of looking at that entanglement and thought this possibly played a role in her death. The necropsy kind of started to confirm that. Uh, but questions of kind of how it turned the corner, again, this whale suffered for a really long time with this injury, are, are not totally clear yet. It's a preliminary report. So there are still in uh, questions that need to be answered based on samples that will come back, about infection, about whether the whale became septic or whether uh, it starved. That's Mm. another way this whale could have kind of finally turned the corner. She was in poor nutritional condition, is what researchers said, meaning she was very thin. She was mobilizing fat. Uh, And obviously this entanglement was cutting just so deeply into her tissues. Um, I I talked to a researcher who performed the necropsy. She said she needed power tools to get um the rope out after out of its its skin after it was over.
0: So this whale became entangled uh, when she was somewhere around a year and a half mm. old. She's three and a, or three years old as she's come ashore her body. So for a year and a half, had this entanglement around her tail. Uh, one of the ways you describe this is as if somebody put a collar around the neck of a puppy and then never widened it as the animal grew. Yeah, uh, just excruciating to think about this whale growing with this entanglement around its tail. Yeah, uh, remind us what happens now. To this whale. I mean, this was an immense animal. If anybody has, if you've seen the pictures online, lots of pictures online, social media, just huge. It's mm. a, what happens to the animal?
2: Yeah, this was an 11 ton animal, and so it took a full day to dissect the whale. Um, researchers took hundreds of samples. So some of what they'll be doing over the next few weeks is going through those samples to be able to finalize the cause of death. Uh, and then hopefully also use those samples for other studies when it comes to to right whales. Her carcass itself that was buried on the island on a um tribal trust land and the tribe is planning to honor this whale. Um, they see whales as as family that's like part of the the tribe's creation story. So um, in about a year from now they're expecting to Maybe pull out some of her bones and use them for art or for um, education, but mostly they the plan is to respect this whale and give it a final resting place um, and, and really treat it as one of their own.
0: In a story that we released this morning, it's on the website, you looked at uh, 5120, this whale's short life. Uh, It's such a compelling story because really you think that these are wild creatures, but they've been followed their entire lives. Uh, What did you learn about her?
2: Well, we learned that she was born somewhere off the coast of Florida or Georgia. That's kind of typical. These are those are the calving grounds for North Atlantic right whales. And they're really important grounds for this population of like 350 animals. And some of 5120's first photos. This is this whale. Her name's 5120. That's what they call her. Uh, were taken off the coast of Nantucket. They show her just a few feet away from her mother, Squilla, who herself actually has been entangled at least three times in 15 years. Thankfully, they've been minor entanglements, but Oof. um and the two of them traveled to New York Massachusetts Bay Cape Cod Bay they kind of like went north up the uh, up the up the coast um but then when 5120 was a year and a half old which is still a juvenile these mm. animals basically live a human Lifespan, So she truly is like a three-year-old. Um, but when she was a year and a half old, she was seen for the first time with rope wrapped around her tail and then another 200 feet of trailing rope up in Canadian waters. Uh, and that's when researchers started getting... Eager to to try to disentangle her.
0: Well, tell us about that because the local disentanglement experts, folks from the Center for Coastal Studies, they tried to free this whale previously in its life.
2: Yeah, I talked to Scott Landry from the Center for Coastal Studies, who runs the disentanglement effort. His team waited five months until 5021 5121, excuse me, 5120 uh, came to local waters so that they could really try to disentangle her, but. Two big problems emerged. First, that rope was just tighter than ever, as we said, she was growing; her skin was growing around that that entanglement, so it was tighter than ever. And second, that trailing gear I had mentioned that two hundred, you know, feet of rope. It was gone. Um, And that's what they had hoped to latch onto and pull off of her. So the team wasn't feeling great about the chances. But they spent three days on the water trying to disentangle her with a specially adapted grappling hook. They throw it from a small boat towards the collar of rope. They hope it catches on, cuts through. But she's a young whale. So she uh, is small and agile and moves quickly. And once she heard the sound of the grapple hit the water, she would kind of dart away. Um, every time they went in her direction, she would go the opposite one. And then bad weather came. The Center for Coastal Studies wasn't able to go out for a fourth day. She left local waters. Um And that was really concerning after that. They didn't get another chance to disentangle her.
0: And then she came ashore dead on Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. Uh, You spent a lot of time in the presence of this whale last Mm. week. You've spent a lot of time since then thinking about this whale and learning more about her life. I'm just curious what some of your takeaways from this are.
2: Mm, What a good question. Um, I think they're all over the map. I I I thought... You know, I had hoped after the death of this whale that the conversation right away would be about, you know, okay, what's the government going to do to stop entanglements like these? And I think that's still a big question we're trying to answer in our reporting, like, does this whale move the needle? Mm. Um, But it's been interesting to talk to right whale researchers who feel a mix of kind of they it's self-admitted almost like delusional hope that it will change because the alternative is so sad and just like total deflation we have 30 years of data that explains that right whales are dying from entanglements and yet here we are and you know nothing nothing has changed this whale suffered for a long time so uh i'm thinking a lot about this whale i don't know
0: CAI's Eve Zuckoff, Eve, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. This is the News Roundup on The Point. I'm Steve Junker. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll check in with Unki Sanu of the Martha's Vineyard Times. Stay with us. This is the News Roundup on The Point. We're talking about the top local stories of the week with reporters and editors from around the region. I'm Steve Junker. On Martha's Vineyard, Edgartown students exercise school choice, leaving for other island schools, at a significantly higher rate than students from other towns transfer into Edgartown. So what's going on? Unki Sanu of the Martha's Vineyard Times joins us with the story. Hi, Unki. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. The Times article here characterizes this as frustration from parents with how the Eggertown School is prioritizing its resources, saying there's a sense that the school may not be doing enough to challenge higher-achieving kids. Explain what's happening here.
3: So some parents have um, a lot of complaints saying some of the resources that could be going to Teach on the higher achieving students have not really gone that way, it's, and resources are kind of being splintered to cater to students who might have more needs, such as English language learners or special needs. And our recent, during a recent Egertown school committee meeting, it showed that, like you said, a lot more students are exiting this school district for other schools compared to those who are coming in. And uh, for this year. Seventeen left, but only left Eckertown School. Only two came in, so you can see the imbalance right there.
0: The population of the school, roughly, so people have an idea of how big this is.
3: Right, the population is roughly three hundred seventy-nine. That's the current total. So you know, with just seventeen, it doesn't sound like a whole lot. But you know, their population isn't huge to start with.
0: Uh, the school is serving a, a pretty diverse community. How does that impact the, what's going on here?
3: Right. So, Eckertown has been reported to have around forty percent of its students to be to have a first language that's not English. So, and around twenty percent of them are classified as English language learners. So, having that argument that resources are being allocated towards English language learners or other students with different needs, you know, kind of potentially hampering higher grade achiever or achievers. It can be a bit, sound a bit problematic for some. And it's something the school will have to grapple with and how to address the needs of all uh, the students that they have. And that is something that they're trying to work with.
0: Uh, it's not unusual for schools to have limited resources and be struggling how you know, to allocate them across the school population. Uh, the school itself here, Egertown, has been receiving uh, complaints, though, vocally from parents, apparently, or or I guess a written complaints. I, explain what they're hearing from their parent community.
3: Right, so... Um the written complaints did mention, as we said earlier, the a lot of it was based on the non-my uh, sometimes saying, "Hey, my kid, he he or she isn't being you know, intellectually stimulated enough in the classroom. You guys aren't really doing enough to help with that, because you know, like we said, the res like you just said, see, the resources there's limitations and you know, they're being split off. So that is some of the stuff that were said or written." In those letters, and some of those were voiced during the recent meeting.
0: Uh, what what is the school saying here in response to this? What, what's the sense of what the answer is going to be?
3: At the moment, it's a little less certain on what the exact answer will be. There have, you know, they've mentioned stuff that they've been trying, such as a, a, an option called co-teaching, where they would have two teachers in a classroom so that. You know they can kind of attend to all all the students in there, but at the moment they've had, you know it seems like some people haven't seen the data until very recently. So and you know it seems like there's a bit of a catch-up mode in trying to address the needs and the complaints that have been um, brought up recently.
0: Uh, there does a, it's such a challenge for educators to to deal within the budgets that they're handed to be able to do the work that they're asked to do it does seem like the school is is trying to listen to the, to the community and understand what what the needs are here that they they are being receptive to the message they're getting
3: certainly yeah I mean uh, the superintendent um, recently met with parents to get more input from about their concerns and and they're trying to figure out how they can you know, keep students, Like make this a, a district where students want to stay and whatnot. And this is not a, an issue that only towns is going to deal with. With the changing demographics for the, for the island, the state, and the country, this is going to be an issue that you know, school district, many, many school districts you know, nationwide are going to have to gra- probably grapple with.
0: So Unki Sanu of the Martha's Vineyard Times, where you can read the story online. Unki, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. A $20 million house in Chatham, right along the coast, was protected by a large and substantial seawall. But something strange has happened. A big portion of that seawall seems to have disappeared, swallowed up by the ocean. Tim Wood of the Cape Cod Chronicle joins us with the story. Hi, Tim. Hi, Steve. Uh, Tim, you see these seawalls along the coast, often protecting older properties, and they look invincible. They're like massive structures of stone. Mm -hmm. Describe what happened here, because it really is remarkable. You've got images on the website there. It it just seems to have been swallowed up. Yeah,
4: if you look at those photos, you can see that uh, this revetment along the the southern side of Morris Island here in Chatham, uh, it just seems to sort of stop. And um, Chatham... Adams Coastal Resources Director Ted Keon described it as just like he said, sort of disappearing. He said he's never seen anything like it. Uh, but what has happened, he explained, is that um, sand that is building up from the south has basically squeezed uh, the deep water channel that runs along that coast, that Morris Island coast, um, and deepened that channel, and essentially pushed it right up against the revetment, and it basically toppled those rocks, those stones, into um, into the channel, which in some places is 40 feet deep. So essentially, like you said, it basically swallowed up this revetment. And, um, and we're talking about um, the same sort of erosion in this area that has uh, plagued uh, the Monomoy National Wildlife Refuge a little bit to the, uh, to the east, maybe a quarter of a mile to the east. But between the, the, the Fish and Wildlife and uh, and this particular home on Tulipi Run is that substantial revetment, and at both ends it's um, being eaten away by the erosion. Mm. Uh, the property owner at the, uh, the east end has put in a 60-foot uh, steel uh, wall bulkhead to try to stop the erosion, and that looks like what they're going to be doing at the other end as well.
0: This part of the Cape, uh, in particular, is no uh, stranger to being reshaped by nature very quickly, it seems like. But there's a couple of things uh, it seems like people are keeping their eye on here. One is what happens to the land side behind where that revetment was, because a lot of structures are now exposed. And then what happens with everything that's toppling into the water?
4: That's exactly it. uh, Town officials are very concerned because... Um, as that revetment has disappeared, what was behind it, which includes a lot of trees and other debris, um, has also gone into the channel, and that didn't sink like the rocks. That floated into the waterways, and they're concerned about um, hazards to navigation because of that. And, uh, and, and the house, and there's a pool right in front of the house on the Seaward side, um, it's less than 100 feet from that bank. And um, so there's real concern that if this erosion continues at the rapid rate it has, that those could also topple down the bank, and, and, and that, would, that would cause a massive problem uh, in the water. That's why last week the Conservation Commission issued a, an emergency order that allows the property owner to put in that 60-foot uh, deep steel bulkhead. It's going to run about 200 feet around the shore where that sort of lost revetment used to be. And uh, hopefully um, that will prevent further, um, further debris from falling into the waterways. Um, and town officials, they think that this erosion is probably temporary because that sort of uh, swath of sand that's pushing the, uh, the channel in towards uh, Morris Island has been gradually moving west. And they anticipate that as it moves further west, um, there'll be less of a, Sort of a pincher move there that forces the the, the swift deep water up against the uh, up against the mainland, um, and at that point they think the erosion will sort of um, abate. They don't think that it'll slow down completely, but um, it'll at least um, become maybe a little less of an immediate hazard.
0: It's Tim Wood of the Cape Cod Chronicle. You can see the photos online with the article. Tim, thanks so much. Thanks very much, Steve. Wellfleet oysters are known around the country, and shellfishing in Wellfleet is big business. And Now there's a spat in town government over the hiring of an assistant shellfish constable. Doesn't sound like a big deal, maybe, but remember that Wellfleet has had problems hanging on to its town administrators and other officials. It's all tangled up together. Ed Miller of the Provincetown Independent joins us to explain what's going on. Hi, Ed.
5: Hi there, Steve. I was afraid you were going to ask me to talk about
0: this story. <laughs> <laughs> well, the simple premise here is a fight over whether a position should be three quarter time or full time, I guess. But it seems a bit like a proxy battle for a lot of other forces at work. I don't know, maybe well, start at the simplest end.
5: Yeah, I, you're right, I think. Um, on the surface, this is just about the proposed hiring, as you say. Of a, an additional shellfish constable and turning a position that was approved at three quarters time into full, full time. Um, and certain people in town claim that the way the, this was done was illegal and deceitful. Uh, but an extensive review by town officials, town council from KP Law, and our own reporters at The Independent show really that the complaints have no merit. And uh, some people, including town administrator Rich Waldo, uh, feel that this is really based more on animosity towards town officials who are simply doing their jobs. And I think we're seeing this a lot uh, in Wellfleet and in some other towns, too, where there's just this really negative attitude that has gotten um, uh, pretty extreme towards, uh, towards town officials.
0: Well, the Wellfleet Town Administrator is serving out the remainder of uh, just a couple more weeks, I guess, before he moves along. Uh, and and he has said that this, even this particular fight over this three-quarter time to full-time position, was a piece of the puzzle of him feeling like things were not functional. Is that right?
5: That's exactly right. Actually, uh, today is Rich Waldo's last day today. as Town Administrator. Okay. He resigned after just about a year and a half, citing stress and lack of support from the select board, especially. The assistant town administrator, Silvio Janel, um, who was ready to step in as interim town administrator, has also resigned, giving very similar reasons to Waldo. And uh, as you may remember, town department heads and other staff had publicly called on the select board in early December, to to take action, to remedy this toxic environment of angry exchanges, endless meetings, accusations. Uh, Two of the people who are responsible for a large number of these insults and accusations, Diane Brunt and Jude Ahern, said at that uh, meeting that the letter from the staff was a veiled attack on their right to free speech. Ahern has been removed more than once from select board meetings by the police and Brunt and her partner, Brad Morse, who are shellfishermen, regularly interrupt meetings with their attacks on town officials, especially mm. shellfish constable Nancy Chivetta and Waldo. And you know, they, they it's it's uh, it's really gotten out of hand.
0: Well, we, one of the things your article points to is that the shellfishing industry for Wellfleet brings in nine and a half million dollars in revenue. So it's a it's the biggest year-round industry in the town by far. Uh, there's a lot of people involved here, and and there's even a sense that part of the pushback on this is that people aren't within shellfishing, may not be happy to have more enforcement, which is kind of what's going hand in hand with getting more uh, another person as a shellfish constable.
5: Well, that's right. Uh, So like uh, Brunt and Morse say that the shellfish department is overstaffed and overfunded and that they don't need any more help. But what uh, Rich Waldo says is that people are angry at Nancy Chivetta just for doing her job. He says they are going to fight tooth and nail over anything she does, and that is because her role is enforcement. They were used to not having enforcement before she began, and now that they do, they don't like
0: it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just real briefly, Wellfleet does have another town administrator picked out?
5: Yes, that's right, um... The town has uh, at least uh, offered the, an interim town administrator job to um, a man from uh, who's been in, in Bourne. I'm sorry, I don't recall his name right at the moment, but um, uh, they're still negotiating a contract with him. Uh, second choice was former town administrator Harry Turkanian, who's been around for a long time in Wellfleet.
0: Tom Guarino, um, I
5: think. That's it. Bourne. Tom yep. Guarino. Yes. Thank you very much, Chief. Um So uh, they're, you know, working the select board is is scrambling to try and find people to come in and work Mm -hmm. in Wellfleet. But it's it's not an easy task, given the history of uh, how much uh, acrimony there's been here.
0: Ed Miller of the Provincetown Independent. Ed, thank you. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm Steve Junker. We're going to the break now. When we come back, we'll hear from Jason Grazide of Nantucket Current. Stay with us. This is the Local News Roundup on the Point. I'm Steve Junker. We are talking about the top local stories of the week with colleagues in the print and digital media. You may have seen the video from Nantucket last October on an empty Main Street at night. A pickup truck comes barreling along at high speed and demolishes the historic Main Street Fountain. Which had just been restored. Questions around the incident continue to spark discussion on the island. Jason Grazide of Nantucket Current has details and an update. Hi, Jason. Good morning. A lot of people who saw that video, and it's easy to find on social media, assumed that this might be straightforward. You can see the truck. You can see what happened. This week saw a probable cause hearing in court. Tell us what happened
6: yeah uh this was uh, a very high profile case given you know the monument at the base of main street the main street fountain is sort of iconic landmark uh in downtown nantucket uh which as you said was destroyed last october when it was struck by a white uh chevy silverado uh, as you said it was all caught on camera um, the police identified a suspect um, pretty quickly they followed a trail of fluids back to the Holgate's laundromat uh, and identified uh, Michael Holgate, the owner of the laundromat, as the suspect in the in the crash. Um, what was curious was that uh, for three months he he never was facing any charges specifically related to the destruction of the fountain. He was charged with drunk driving, negligent operation, uh, but nothing related to the to the destruction of the fountain. Uh, that issue was hashed out yesterday in Nantucket District Court during a probable cause hearing when Nantucket police um, sought to bring charges against him, uh, including um, destruction of an historic monument, uh, vandalism, um, and this whole case was brought before a clerk magistrate. This was a show cause hearing. So they basically are. Asking the clerk to issue a complaint against Holgate, and they are trying to show the a preponderance of evidence that would warrant him and probable cause to issue a complaint. Uh, this hearing was lasted about an hour and a half, uh, and the problem that the police had was that they could not, uh, in the eyes of the clerk magistrate, prove that uh, Holgate was behind the wheel at the time the truck hit the fountain. Now, what they did was present a, a whole mountain of surveillance videos, which showed the truck. You couldn't see who was driving it in these surveillance videos. It was nighttime. It was dark. Um, and they also had uh, secured a search warrant for his cell phone, used the location data, which put him uh, in the downtown area about an hour before the crash, but it stopped transmitting data after that. So, they had some evidence but they didn't have was enough to prove in the eyes of the clerk magistrate uh who was driving that truck uh at the time and 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 holgate's lawyer was very adamant that a number of people had access uh to that vehicle and that it was not holgate who was actually driving it when it crashed in the fountain so uh no charges now and uh we're gonna see where this goes but uh you know the, the the fountain will hopefully be repaired uh, this year and and brought back to its place uh, at the bottom of Main Street. Um, but again, a high profile case on the island. Mm.
0: Uh, let me ask you about another story. The Steamship Authority opened summer reservations this week after postponing the ticket sales when the website experienced problems at an earlier date. How did it go this week? I think they the steamship is pleased with
6: the way it went there was no uh when reservations opened at 8 a.m yesterday there were long waits people were waiting you know maybe two and a half hours to get into the system to book their reservations there was about 10,000 people uh at one point trying to get on and get their reservations but the system held uh it did there was no major glitches or crashes as there had been in the in the previous couple years so i think they're they're you know user sort of customer experience varied and some people had some issues but there was not any sort of major uh, glitches yesterday with uh the booking the reservations and uh steamship authority communications director uh, sean driscoll said that by 3 p.m yesterday that they had processed about 7,800 transactions uh representing about 4.2 million dollars in revenue so uh I think they are pleased, and hopefully we'll be getting that new Steamship Authority website uh, pretty soon here. Uh,
0: it's a lot of for them to process very quickly, obviously, that many people trying to make reservations all at once. And it's good for them. You can understand why they're pleased that their system didn't crash and everything like held together, as you say. But still, you think about people logging on and waiting two hours or more to make reservations while they're in like a virtual waiting room, and you guys have a, a an image of that. Uh, what it looks like on your screen it's that's a long time to wait
6: yeah it, and it, and it is and, and and you know the comment we get repeatedly from folks is you know there has to be a better way mm-hmm. <laughs> you know so there's got to be a better way to figure this out uh in 2024 here um but uh you know and, and we you know the steamship authority's new website is coming Next on the horizon is a, uh, a total sort of revamp of this reservation system, which they're going to have to figure out. And I think hopefully we do see that uh, improve and come up with a better system.
0: Jason Grazzi, day of Nantucket Current. Jason, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. Governor Healy is pushing for spending cuts in hopes of making up for a billion dollar shortfall at the State House. Morning edition host Patrick Flannery spoke with our State House correspondent, Katie Lannan. Here's their conversation. Good morning, Katie.
7: Hey, good morning.
8: Governor Healy put out her proposed budget earlier this month, and it's noteworthy because of the spending cuts she's put forward. This week, there was a hearing on that proposal. How are lawmakers feeling about it, Katie, with this tax revenue shortfall?
7: Yeah, lawmakers still have questions about what is causing the tax revenue shortfall that we've been, you know, for seven straight months now. Our state tax revenue collections have been coming in below target. And, you know, Healy's budget team says it has some answers, but says we won't really know the full picture until April when most people file their taxes. Oh, that's a big revenue month for the state. So they're still trying to get a handle on, as lawmakers take their turn to write the budget, where exactly they're going to have the money to invest. You know, As you say, Healy wants to cut some spending, and that's to back investments in other areas like transportation and early education. So lawmakers are still trying to figure out exactly how much they'll have to spend and where they'll be able to put it.
8: Katie, after we talked last week, the state Senate passed a gun control package. It's a bill as it stands now, and it cracks down on those homemade untraceable guns known as ghost guns. I'm still unclear on how you regulate guns you can't trace. But that aside, what else is in this bill and what happens before anything is final?
7: Yeah, one way it tries to get at the ghost gun issue is by really restricting the 3D printing of gun parts, which is a a thing the state's current gun laws don't contemplate, right? It's a relatively new technology. There's also measures in there enhancing the state's red flag law, allowing more people to petition the courts to remove the guns of someone deemed a danger. There's restrictions on uh, devices that make semi-automatic weapons fire more quickly And there's restrictions on marketing gun sales to minors. So there's a lot in there. The House and the Senate have each passed different bills. The House's bill is much longer, believe it or not, since there's already a lot in that Senate bill. It's about 94 pages longer. So there's going to be a lot that those two branches will need to reconcile before shipping a final bill to Governor Healy, which they want to do this summer or even sooner, but it's a lot of work. A lot of that will play out behind closed doors. It'll be hard to follow the process, but eventually the hope is that we will see some sort of compromise between the House and the Senate.
8: Okay. Well, shifting gears a bit, there will be no February break for students in Newton this year. That's because public school teachers had been on strike over pay, what was it, almost two weeks. It's since been resolved, I understand.
7: That's right. Uh, Wrapped up late last week after as you say, 11 days of a strike, so more than two full weeks of school, at least. And the, the Healy administration had come in at the end trying to help force a deal, really, and the two sides, the, the t- city and the schools, announced an agreement last Friday night that raises pay for teachers and aides, amongst several other things. Interestingly, at the same time, we've seen this week Beacon Hill lawmakers killing a bill, not advancing it in the legislative process that would legalize strikes by teachers and other public workers. So that's something that the Mass Teachers Association had really been pushing for this year as we see more and more teachers taking to the picket line.
8: Finally, Katie, this is unusual to say the least. Governor Healy has nominated a former partner as a judge on the state's top court. And when we say former partner, we're not talking about a legal partner from her days as, you know, attorney general. We mean a romantic partner from the past. We are talking about the Supreme Judicial Court here. I mean, Democrat-Republican, this is a conflict of interest, no?
7: Healy says it isn't, and part of her reasoning for that is that her former partner, Judge Gabrielle Woholajan, has been a judge. She's on the appeals court, and she has not recused herself from cases involving the executive office or administration so far, hasn't had to step back from those. And Healy says overall that she was the most qualified application for the post, unanimously recommended by the panel that screens judicial applications. and Healy Healy's stance is that their past relationship, they lived together and were in a relationship while Healy was serving as and running for attorney general quite some time. That shouldn't deprive Massachusetts of a, a qualified judge for this post. Now, of course, we've also seen the state Republican Party calling this highly appropriate, highly inappropriate and calling for Healy to withdraw the nomination. So this is subject to confirmation by the elected officials who serve on the governor's council. So that will be... We'll see what they do with this nomination.
8: It'll be a long road ahead, that's for sure. Katie Lennon, as always, from the
0: State House, thank you for your time. Thank you. And that is Morning Edition host Patrick Flannery speaking with State House correspondent Katie Lennon. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm Steve Junker, a program that looks to help young people who are facing homelessness by enlisting homeowners who may have an extra room to offer, is expanding. CAI's Brian Engels has details. Hi, Brian. Hey, Steve. This seems like a creative approach to tackling the issue of young people facing housing instability in our region.
9: Describe the program. Sure. So uh, it's called Host Homes. Uh, it's offered through Homeless Prevention Council in Orleans. Uh, the program is designed to help unhoused youths and young adults under the age of 25 They're matched with a homeowner who has an extra room or additional space in their house uh, where that young person can stay. Placements are typically for 6 to 12 months while they look for more permanent housing. I spoke with Dan Gray. Uh, He's the Continuum of Care Program Manager Manager with uh, Barnesville County. And he says that Host Homes puts a lot of work in up front to make sure that the placements are going to be good fits. Uh, You know, that can involve conversations about, um, you know, how the young person can help out around the house or what the expectations are going to be in regards to curfew, things like that. Uh,
0: What do we know about the scope of youth homelessness in our region?
9: Uh, Yeah, so um, from July through December of last year, there were about – 90 young people who received services from the county's partner agencies. Um, But it's likely that there are more young people who are facing housing instability and homelessness here. Uh, Gray from County Human Services says that the Cape has a higher percentage of young people who are couch surfing compared to the rest of Massachusetts. Um, And he says that that makes it harder to identify young people who don't have housing. Tell us about the opportunity here for the program
0: to expand. It it can grow because funding is coming into it?
9: Yeah. So Host Homes um, is going to be able to expand to other parts of the Cape besides just the lower and outer Cape. That's where it's been operating. It's because of some federal dollars that uh, the county received actually back in 2022. But now they're implementing them as part of the county's new plan to address uh, youth homelessness in the region. And those federal dollars will help be able to provide the hosts of the program uh, with a monthly stipend of likely between $800 to $1,000 a month.
0: Hmm. Uh, Just a couple of minutes left here. I want to get to another story that you covered this week. We've heard a lot about plastic debris in the ocean. Now some folks are taking an
9: innovative approach to solving that problem,
0: specifically as it relates to straws. Tell us about this.
9: Yeah, so this new study about plastic straws that came out of Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, it focused on how fast different kinds of straws Uh, Breakdown in the ocean. I spoke with Colin Ward, a scientist at HUI. Uh, He was one of the researchers on this. And for the study, uh, his team put different kinds of straws into a tank at HUI. It had water from Vineyard Sound continuously being pumped into it for 16 weeks, and that mimicked the effects of the ocean. Uh, There were plastic straws in the tank, uh, paper straws, and a new prototype straw that they made for this as well. And what they found was that the plastic straws didn't break down at all, and the paper straws broke down in about two years. And
0: tell us about this new prototype straw. It's, it appears like a plastic straw, but it's
9: not the traditional plastic. Right, right. It's called a uh, bioplastic, meaning it's plastic that's not made from fossil fuels. This one's derived from wood. And uh, the Huey scientists say that this new kind of straw, it actually breaks down in the environment even faster than the paper straws do.
0: I was surprised in the testing, the paper straws actually stick around a long time.
9: Yeah, yeah, a long time, you know, two years, yeah. but compared to never, ever breaking down, yeah. it's not so bad. Did you get to uh, handle one of these pl- new straws? I did not get to see one, uh, but they were made in partnership with a uh, plastic manufacturers, which the HUI team said was um, a cool part of this project, was that partnership of industry and academia. Mm. That is CAI's Brian Engels. Thanks, Brian. Thank you.
0: That's our show for today. I want to thank all my guests. We heard from CAI's Jeanette Barnes and Eve Zuckoff. We spoke to Unki Sanu at the Martha's Vineyard Times and Tim Wood at the Cape Cod Chronicle. We heard from Ed Miller of the Provincetown Independent and Jason Graziade of Nantucket Current. CAI's Patrick Flannery spoke with our State House reporter Katie Lennon, and we heard from CAI's Brian Engels. Big thanks going out to Amy Vince for engineering the program today. That's it. We'll talk to you next week in Woods Hole. I'm Steve Junker. Thank you for listening.